Um, okay, so this is a, a short story called Wires. Um, it's set in Lincolnshire, um, as are lots of stories I've been writing recently. Oh, that's better, isn't it? You can hear me now when I look up. Um, so I've got a collection of stories coming out next year in February, um, which is called This Isn't the Sort of Thing That Happens to Someone Like You. And they're all set in Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire in the kind of flat east of the country. Uh, this one's set near Hull. Um, and you're all from London, so you might not know what sugar beet is. It's a, it's a big root vegetable, about this size, like a big muddy turnip, and they use it for making sugar. Uh, the narrator's a woman. It was a sugar beet, presumably, since that was a sugar beet lorry in front of her, and this thing turning in the air at something like 60 miles an hour had just fallen off it. It looked like a giant turnip and was covered in mud, and basically looked more or less like whatever she would have imagined a sugar beet to look like if she'd given it any thought before now, which she didn't think she had. It was totally filthy. They didn't make sugar out of that, did they? What did they do? Grind it? Cook it? Regardless, whatever, it was coming straight for her. Meaning this was, what, one of those time slows down moments or something. Her life was presumably going to start flashing in front of her eyes right about now. She wondered why she hadn't screamed or anything. Oh, seemed to be about as much as she'd managed. But in the time it had taken to say, oh, she'd apparently had the time to make a list of all the things she was having the time to think about, like, i.e., item one, how she'd said, oh, without any panic or fear. And did that mean she was repressed or just calm or collected or what? Item two, what would Marcus say when he found out? Would he try and find someone to blame, such as herself, for driving too close or even for driving on her own at all? Or such as the lorry driver for overloading the lorry? Or such as her, again, for not having joined the union like he told her to, like anyone was in a union these days? Especially anyone with a part-time job who was still at uni and not actually well bothered about pension rights or legal representation. (laughs) Item three, but she couldn't possibly be thinking all this in the time it was taking for the sugar beet to turn in the air and crash through the windscreen, if that's what it was going to do, and what then, meaning this must be like a neural pathway illusion or something. (laughs) Item four, actually Marcus did go on sometimes, he did reckon himself, and how come she thought things like that about him so often, maybe she was being unfair. Because they were good together, people had told her they were good together, but basically she was confused and she didn't know where she stood. Item five... A witty and deadpan way of mentioning this on a status update would be something like, Emily Wilkinson is sweet enough already, thanks, without a sugar beet... (laughs) Without a sugar beet in the face. Although, actually, she wouldn't be able to put that if that's what was actually going to (laughs) happen. Thinking about it, logically. Item six, although, did she really even know what a neural pathway was? Or was it just something she'd heard someone else talk about and decided to start saying? Item seven was just... Basically, what the fuck? (laughs) Meanwhile, before she had time to do anything useful, like e.g. swerve or break or duck or throw her arms up in front of her face, the sugar beet smashed through the windscreen and thumped into the passenger seat beside her. There was a roar of cold air, and now she swerved, only now, once there was no need, and it just made things more dangerous. Into the middle lane, and back again into the slow lane. It was totally instinctive, and totally useless, and basically made her think of her great-granddad saying, God help us if there's a war on. (laughs) She saw other people looking at her, or she thought she did, all shocked faces and big mouths, a woman pulling at her boyfriend's arm and pointing, a man swearing and reaching for his phone, another man in a blue van waving her over to the hard shoulder. But she might have imagined this, or invented it afterwards. Marcus was always saying that people didn't look at her as much as she thought they did. She never knew whether he meant this to reassure her, or if he was saying she reckoned herself too much. (laughs) Anyway, point being, status update, 
Emily Wilkinson is still alive. (laughs) She pulled over to the hard shoulder and came to a stop. The blue van pulled over in front of her. She put her hazard lights on and listened to the clicking sound they made. When she looked up, the people in the passing cars already had no idea what had happened. The drama was over. The traffic was back to full speed. The lorry was already miles down the road. She wondered if she was supposed to start crying. She didn't really feel like crying. Someone was standing next to the car. Bloody hell, he said. He peered in at her through the hole in the windscreen. He looked like a mechanic or a breakdown man or something. He was wearing a wax jacket with rips in the elbows and jeans. He looked tired. His eyes were puffy and dark and his breathing was heavy. He rested his hand on the bonnet and leaned in closer. Bloody hell, he said again, raising his voice against the traffic. You're all right, love. She smiled and nodded and shrugged, which was weird, which meant was she for some reason apologising for his concern? Bloody hell, he said for a third time. You could have been killed. Thanks. Great. (laughs) This was what, news? She looked down at the sugar beet, which was sitting on a heap of glass on the passenger seat beside her. The bits of glass were small and lumpy, like gravel. She noticed more bits of glass on the floor and the dashboard and spread across her lap. She noticed that her left arm was scratched and that she was still holding onto the steering wheel and that maybe she wasn't breathing quite as much as she should have been, although that happened whenever she thought about her breathing, it going wrong like that, too deep or too shallow or too quick, although that wasn't just her, surely. It was one of those well-known paradoxes, like a Buddhist thing or something, total mindlessness, mindfulness, just breathe. Police are on their way, someone else said. She looked up and saw another man, a younger man in a sweatshirt and jeans, holding up a silver phone. I just called the police, he said. They're on their way. He seemed pleased to have a phone with him, the way he was holding it. (laughs) Like this was his first one or something, which there was no way. You called them, did you? The older man asked. The younger man nodded and put his phone in his pocket and looked at her. She sat there, waiting for the two of them to catch up. Like, yes, a sugar beet had come through the windscreen. No, she wasn't hurt. Yes, this other guy did phone the police. Any further questions? I could email you the notes. The younger man looked through the hole in the windscreen and at the windscreen itself and whistled. Actually whistled. You're right, he asked her. You cut or anything? You in shock? She shook her head. Not that she knew how she would know she was in shock. She was pretty sure one of the symptoms of being in shock would be not thinking you were in shock. Like with hypothermia, when you take off your clothes and roll around laughing in the snow. She'd read that somewhere. He looked at the sugar beet and whistled again. I mean, he said, and now she didn't know if he was talking to her or the other man. That could have been fatal, couldn't it? The other man nodded and said something in agreement. They both looked at her again. You could have been killed, the younger man said. It was good of him to clarify that for her. (laughs) She wondered what she was supposed to say. They looked as if they were waiting for her to ask something, to ask for help in some way. Well, thanks for stopping, she said. They could probably go now, really, if they'd called the police. There was no need to wait. She thought she probably wanted them to go now. Oh, no, it's nothing. Don't be daft, the older man said. Couldn't just leave you like that, could we? The younger man said. He looked at her arm. You're bleeding, he said. Look. He pointed to the scratches on her arm, and she looked down at herself. She could see the blood, but she couldn't feel anything. There wasn't much of it. It could be someone else's, couldn't it? But there wasn't anyone There wasn't anyone else. It must be hers. But she couldn't feel anything. She looked back at the younger man. It's fine, she said. It's nothing, really. Thanks. No, it might be, though, he said. 
It might get infected. You have to be careful with things like that. There's a first aid box in the van. Hang on. He turned and walked back to the van. A blue transit with the name and number of a landscape gardening company painted across the back and a little cartoon gardener with a speech bubble saying no job was too small. The doors were tied shut with a length of orange rope. The number plate was splattered with mud, but it looked like a K-reg. K450 something, although she wasn't sure if that was O the number or O the letter. The older man turned and smiled at her while they were waiting, and she supposed that was him trying to be reassuring, but to be honest, it looked a bit weird, although he probably couldn't help it. He probably had some kind of condition, like a degenerative eye condition maybe, and then on top of that, which would be painful enough, he had to put up with people like her thinking he looked creepy when he was just trying to be nice. (laughs) She smiled back. She didn't want him thinking she'd been thinking all that about him looking creepy or weird. (laughs) Police will be here in a minute, he said. She nodded. Laurie must have been overloaded, he said. Driver's probably none the wiser even now. No, she said, glancing down at the sugar beet again. I suppose not. The younger man came back, waving a green plastic first aid box at her. He looked just as pleased as when he'd held up the phone. She wondered if he was on some sort of special supported apprenticeship or something, if he was a little bit learning challenged, and then she thought it was probably discriminatory of her to have even thought that, and she tried to get the thought out of her mind. Only, you can't get thoughts out of your mind just by trying. That was another one of those Buddhist things. She should just concentrate on not thinking about her breathing instead, she thought. Just total mindlessness or mindfulness. Just breathe. Status update. Emily Wilkinson regrets not having signed up for breakdown insurance. The younger man passed her the first aid box through the hole in the windscreen. Thanks, she said. Um, so you finished the story. I mean, how, about what you a third of the way through? Do you think yeah, there a bit more? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I, I read all the stories on the shortlist. I have to say they're all very good um, in different ways. Um, and this one I liked because it's a very kind of contemporary voice. It sounds like lots of people I know um, that kind of dancing from one thought to, to the other, having lots of kind of fragmented Facebook status update-driven thoughts um, at the same time. Um, but this, these, these men that, that she meets um, are almost aggressively helpful, aren't they? they their, their helpfulness becomes almost unwanted. Do you want to tell us how that evolves? Yeah, well, um, the, kind of the middle part of the story is, is her kind of sitting in the car waiting for the police to arrive and she's thinking lots of stuff about her boyfriend and her relationship and her mum and living in Hull and, and all this kind of stuff and, and, and it's very kind of hyper active in her thoughts and not really paying attention to the world around her. And then the men suggest that, that she should get out of the car because it's dangerous staying on the hard shoulder on, on the motorway, which is kind of sensible. And so they, they get out and they climb over the barrier and then they go up the embankment and they're, they're waiting for the police. And um, then the older man goes off down the other side of the embankment to go for a wee. And, and then she decides to phone her boyfriend and as she goes down, to, to moves to go down to the car to get her phone, to phone her boyfriend... The younger man puts his hand on her arm. Stop. So at that point, um, when you were writing the story, um, had you decided what was going to happen? What was going, I mean, it's equivocal, but had you decided about a direction? Did you take it in different directions and come back to that moment? Because it's quite critical, that, that threat. Exactly, exactly. And no, no, I, 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 the story up until that point had been fairly open and fairly 
unthreatening. Mm. Um, and then suddenly, when the when the younger man puts his hand on her arm, the story potentially for me took a whole new twist. Mm. And then actually, the, the story is left a few lines after that with with potentially something very so uh, this is this is what i want to talk about and this is the kind of the intensely typically short story-ish thing about this is that um that that we think we know something there's a world that you've created that we believe in where there are rules and parameters and then you can't you break them Mm -hmm. and for example the two men arrive and we think that they don't know each other do the two men? Do the two men know mm, each other? Yeah, they yeah, do know yeah, each other. Yeah, okay, they've, they've arrived in the same band. Okay, but um, but they but they, there's a it's a uh, their air is not conspiratorial. It's like colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then they start to exchange looks with one another, mm-hmm. um, and you at the point that you leave the story, genuinely, when I was terrified and I thought. <laughs> I'd rather be hit by the sugar beet um, than be helped by the people um, at the side of the road in Hull. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have a, a, the hullness of it is important? Do you do you have an idea? No, there's Philip Larkin. It's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. literary. Um, do, uh, but do you have an idea of what happens to her at the at the end after no. this? Don't you? No. Don't you? No. You're no. not sure yourself. No. Um, I wanted to know if you were sure I, and you were just leaving it up to I us hope, to imagine. Or I hope that nothing happens, but the point of leaving the story there is is that that's quite a common experience for people who to whom something terrible hasn't happened have probably had moments in their lives when they look back and they think I was in a dangerous situation and something terrible could have happened then and it's a it's a frightening thing and and it becomes a kind of limiting thing and and as then as you move forward in your life you kind of Put, the, put your guard up a bit and don't let yourself be drawn into those dangerous or potentially dangerous situations again. So and so the, 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 the Philip Larkin thing is important because mm. it, the, the story's called Wires after the Philip Larkin poem, Wires, which is about um, cattle on American ranches and um, how they're held in by electric fences. And, and, and the old cattle know to go nowhere near the electric fences. They stay in the middle of the ranch, but the young cattle venture further afield and blunder up against the, the fence and you know, the line is something like, um, the youngest cattle become old steers from that day, electric limits to their widest senses. And, and it's about that, that moment in, I think, in everybody's life when something potentially threatening happens and, and, and you kind of move from being, you have your innocence taken away. What was that moment in your life? Um, how perceptive. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was... Um, I was hitchhiking, um, which doesn't bode well. Uh, no, I was, I'd, I'd hitchhiked for years and years and years with no problem. And one time, these guys, three guys in a in a transit van, gave me a lift, but um, there was no room in the front, so I sat in the back. And they were kind of fooling around, kind of driving really fast and braking really suddenly and making me throw around. And then, um, and then all of a sudden, we weren't on the road anymore. We were on a bumpy dirt track, kind of bumping down. And I was just in the back of this van, and it was a. How old were you? 22, 23. Um, there were no windows in the van. It was a dark van. There was like an old tire and some bricks and some rope. And I was kind of bumping down. And a grave van. sign. And, yeah. it, and it was, and it was, you know, and it was, it was terrifying. And, and it sounds. I mean, and, and in the end, you know, we're back on the road. And then we got to some village or something. And and by then, I'd figured out how to open the door from the inside. And I'd figured out that as soon as they stopped, I was going to jump out. But 
they stopped, and then just as I was kind of reaching for the door, one of them ran round and was holding the door shut, and he said, it's all right, don't worry, don't worry, we're just getting some petrol. You're all right, stay where you are. And I was kind of... <clears throat> and eventually kind of got out, and then the guy scarpered, and I ran off, and, and then it was fine, and they were just having a laugh. Okay. <laughs> You, they kind of acknowledged they were having a laugh. Well, you were, well, you've not kind of gone, well, oh, that was really funny, wasn't it? Ha, ha, ha. Well, they just, I mean, they, they way drove, of coping with it? They drove off pretty okay. quickly. And, okay. But you know, it, it was one of those things, you're like, they might have been kidnapping me, and, 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 and especially this, this week in the news, I was thinking about these guys being held slave and mm. took, you know, laying block paving for 15 years. That could have been, that could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that incident occurs in this book, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it does, it? yeah, well done. Yeah. So that, that incident occurs in this book, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it does, it? yeah, well done. Yeah. So which of the characters does it happen to, it's or are we the, told um, it happens it's, to? It's, the, it's the, the brother of... I can't remember. So long ago. <laughs> I love it when people can't remember <laughs> about their own books. Um, so I, I um, wonder what other parts um, of your life or the life that was happening around you are woven into this book. Because um, at, at the beginning, um, for those of you who, who haven't read it, there's a, we're told that there is an incident. Um, something has happened um, on a street where people live, a normal kind of terroristy street that was maybe once grand and now is not. And, and you spend a lot of time guessing about what that incident might have been. Um, and... I mean, I had lots of ideas about, about, about what it was. When, when was it published? Was it 2002? 2002. And so you'd written it before 9-11? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I, I was reading it through my kind of 9-11, right. uh, is there some kind of terror threat on this street? But, I mean, it's intentionally nebulous. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, were you thinking about what kinds of things might happen what, on this street with these seemingly ordinary people? Um, well, no, because I wrote the ending first of all so I, I, oh, knew, okay. I, I always knew I was what I was leading up to um, and it wasn't anything that I'd ever seen or been part of it was just something I kind of for some reason was fixated on imagining the potential of it happening um, uh, I'm still not going to say what it is in case people oh, are no, I know but, um, it's, it's difficult I don't want to be a spoiler but I had, but... I had yeah so I, wrote, I, I, I started the book with the last okay. by writing the last chapter and then kind of built up because the rest of the book essentially is fairly Plotless. It's every. It's the, it's kind of people's scenes from people's lives in the street in the one day. And it's written very um, poetically. There's lot. You know. There's lots. Very short sentences. You know. Um, and it's. Um, it doesn't feel often. Doesn't feel like prose. And I wonder why you chose that style. I. Uh, I can never really answer that question. I just. Um, it was how I was writing at the time. Um, I. Yeah. It was just. I, I was trying to do something very. Because the book is about noticing special things in, 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 in everyday life and noticing mm. the remarkable, um, it, it was by necessity very kind of detailed and, and, and kind of close focus. And so that just kind of generated the style it ended up being in. And there are twins in there. There's a twin in there, which is always creepy. Two twins, two sets of twins. Yeah. Like Charles Fraser's book, Creepy yeah. Twins Appearing. Um, and tell me about your new collection, which is a collection of short stories. Are they related? Uh-huh. Are they each standing alone? Um, is they, this they, one of them? They, this is one of them. Um, they do stand alone, um, but they're, they're, they're kind of unified by, by all being set in Lincolnshire and all having this kind of... Why Lincolnshire? By, well, because Lincolnshire is a is a is a sinister, unsettling. Yeah. And 
it's kind of it's the sort of big bit to the east of the M1 well, that isn't. Yeah, and it's you know. it's kind of unseen, it's unvisited, it's unwritten about for the most part. Okay. Um, and and it's a place that I love, and you know, I because I live in Nottingham, I spend a lot of time kind of cycling okay. out in, in, into the fens and the flatlands, and 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 I love it. But it, it kind of it has that weird thing of being very wide open. But also so very claustrophobic. Yeah, it's that weird thing of being able to see people coming from a long way, yeah. but you yeah. still don't know what they want. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the, you, you said you started off by writing the ending um, of, of this book. When you're when you're writing, how are you how are you thinking about your reader, or how how are you constructing the rhythm of your writing? I think I mean one of the things that I find very frustrating or, or challenging about writing the novel is that the two audiences you're writing for are going to read the book in an, an entirely different way. So publishers and critics and and I guess other writers are more likely to read the book kind of professionally which means sitting down and reading it more or less in one sitting um, and everybody else reads a book the way that we read books which is in 10 minute chunks or half hour chunks on the bus or at lunchtime or, or before you fall asleep and you usually can't remember the last page that you read because you were falling asleep and and so it's very, it's quite difficult to, as a writer to kind of judge pace and rhythm and, 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 and how much information to give the reader and how much to withhold and how much to kind of remind them through the course of the book about particular characters or scenes, which is why I find short stories so much more satisfying to write because most of the time you can trust the reader is going to read it in one chunk. And if they enjoy it, they're going to read it two or three times more and kind of get a sense of the kind of nuance and, and the layers that you've tried to to put in there. Now, I, I love the short story and when I buy a new collection I just read them all, I kind of gorge on them okay. and then I'll go back to re, I'll, re, I'll revisit them um, do, do you think that our, as our attention spans get shorter that the future of the short story is more assured or do you think that oh, there's not I, a connection I, I, I hope so, I hope so and I think um, as people read on screens more and more they'll realise that it actually makes more sense to read a, a short story um, on, on a screen, i, I I don't know. I mean, I haven't got a Kindle or anything, but uh, I'm surprised that people can sit and look at a screen for the length of a whole novel, whereas for the length of a short story, it, it makes sense. And, and yeah, it, it's novels are really long. You know, and, and, and novels, novels come from that kind of 18th century leisure class tradition, and, and, and they're not designed for life now apart from holidays you know which is why people love taking novels on holidays are you are you taking part in the royal society of authors have you seen this thing about tweeting the 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 tweet short story with people yes, like ian rankin yes, and they're yes, doing a first line it. and then they're having people yeah. kind of t- i mean that's like super flash fiction isn't it sort of yeah yeah and they're, and they're doing that because they're trying to draw attention to radio Four, cutting the number of short stories on on the radio which i think is a real shame because the other place that short stories work really well as well as on the screen is is on the radio um you know i, th- I think to, to me that i think it works better than even than drama because you can there's something about the quality of attention you need mm. that, that that works really well with a short story and presumably they're cheap to produce and it's it's very puzzling to me that the radio four have cut back at the same time as i mean this week broadcasting all the stories on the shortlist is, is great as is kind of a promotion of the short story and there seems to be a bit of a tension. I can, I can hear the two people from Radio 4 backing towards the door <laughs> at this point. Um, I'm going to say a huge thank you to John McGregor. 